Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. This decision, this process will change your life. There was a man who changed Marcus Aurelius' life. His name was Quintus Junius Rusticus, a teacher who tirelessly urged his student to read attentively, not to be satisfied with just getting the gist of it. And what did he urge this student to read? Whose work did he recommend to this promising young man? Epictetus. Knowing all the power and responsibility that would soon come Marcus's way, Rusticus designed a course of study and reading that would prepare him as much as possible for the kind of thing you can never truly prepare for. Together they would read and reread these lessons, absorbing and discussing, challenging and encouraging each other, which made them both better. Marcus could have blown this instruction off. He could have chased pleasure instead, but he didn't. He was a diligent and dedicated student. Interestingly enough, Dwight Eisenhower, who in turn would come to hold immense and in some cases absolute power, had a nearly identical influence in his own life. In 1922, as a lowly staff officer, Eisenhower was ordered to Panama to join the 20th Infantry Brigade, serving two years under General Fox Connor, a man Eisenhower later said had a place in my affections that no other, not a relative, could obtain. 
In the book General Fox Connor, Pershing's Chief of Operations and Eisenhower's Mentors, there is a passage about the relationship. Connor gradually led Eisenhower to a more advanced level of military study, the author writes. The general introduced his assistant to the writings of the 19th century Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, whose On War remains an influential treatise on warfare. Eisenhower struggled to grasp the military maxims set forth by Clausewitz. So Connor had Eisenhower read the book three times to drive home the lessons. Connor would quiz Eisenhower as to what each Clausewitzian principle meant. In a 1966 letter, Eisenhower identified Onwar as the book that had most profoundly influenced his military career. Again, Eisenhower didn't have to do any of this. He chose to. One can imagine on the days and nights leading up to June 6, 1944, when Eisenhower successfully led the single largest and most important invasion in military history on the coast of Normandy, we can imagine him finding confidence in the lessons he had learned in Connor's library. One can imagine Marcus Aurelius doing the same with Epictetus and Rusticus in his tent late at night on the front lines of the war in Germania. We should be sobered and inspired by these examples. Reading, particularly when you're young, is not just some fun diversion. It may well be preparing you for a future you cannot even imagine. The mentorships you cultivate today, the people you seek out and listen to, are not just helping you advance in your career. They are part of your hero's journey. They are making you into the person you can be that the world may someday need. So that's your challenge today and every day to find those books, to find your Rusticus and your Fox Connor, and most importantly, to do what they say. For me, this, my sort of Fox Connor and my Rusticus has been Robert Greene. Robert Greene is the person who introduced me to many, many of the books that you've heard me recommend over the years. He taught me how to be a reader. And so actually our Read to Lead Challenge, which we made with Daily Stoke, is largely influenced by some of the ideas from Robert Greene. So I strongly suggest you check that out. If you want to be a better reader, if you want to develop this kind of course of study for yourself, you can check that out at dailystoic.com slash reading. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. Today's guest is actually someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time. I've reached out a million times to their publisher. I thought it was going to happen, then COVID happened, and then kept going back and forth. Then it just went nowhere. And then randomly, I got a Twitter DM from the person herself saying, hey, I would love to come on your podcast sometime. Would you ever want to have me on? And I said, are you kidding? I've been trying to have you on forever. I've loved both of your books. And that is today's guest. I don't know what this says about uh, publicists at publishers or just uh, or just the importance of timing, but I'm so glad I got to make this happen because my guest today, Kate Bowler, is one of my favorite authors. Actually, as I talk about in the interview, my sister is the one who turned me on to this because uh, Kate wrote an amazing piece in the New York Times where she talks about Seneca and grief and dying and her cancer diagnosis. And that's also the topic of her two wonderful books. Her first book, a New York Times bestseller, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's an awesome book. I read it when it first came out. I sell it at my bookstore, The Painted Porch. It's very popular. People love it. Uh, here is my copy. And then her new book, which I just finished, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. Uh, if these two memoirs weren't enough, 
Kate is an associate professor of the history of Christianity at Duke Divinity School. Uh, she has a master's degree in religion from Yale Divinity and a PhD from Duke. She's an expert on the history of uh, Christianity in America, and she's written two really, uh, from what I hear, fascinating academic texts about uh, the prosperity gospel and the role of pastors' wives. So she is both an expert and, I think, a philosopher in the truest Stoic sense, in that she is deeply experienced in life itself. She has a surprise diagnosis of bowel cancer, stage four bowel cancer, as a young woman in her 30s. It turns her life upside down, but in the process forces her to explore all the powerful, life-changing, beautiful ideas that she talks about in these two books and brings her, of course, to Stoicism and thus to today's podcast. She and I hit it off. I'm so excited and proud of this interview. I think you're going to really like it. And uh, Amy, my sister, if you're listening, uh, I hope this is the first uh, episode of the Daily Stoic podcast that you actually like, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. I was going to tell you, you're the first guest in however many hundreds there have been that my sister actually gives a shit about. So <laughs> I am deeply honored. It's honestly right. It's usually someone's mom. So I feel pretty good to be getting the sister, the sister bracket. I, I, I do find that's like the highest praise you can get. Like with someone will say that with one of my books, they'll be like, I'll be like, how'd you hear about the book? They'll be like, oh, my wife made me read it or my husband yeah. made me read it. Because like, I only yeah. recommend like, a small percentage of the stuff that I yeah. read to my wife. I'll recommend stuff to my friends all the time. But <laughs> Who you I don't care about, which this is what this podcast should be about. It's like, what's going on with you and your friends, Ryan? <laughs> well, it's like, if you recommend something to your spouse and they hate it, you'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> yeah, so... that's true. That's true. I do remember, oh my gosh, my poor husband though, like he, he does, he's like a very impatient reader and he does he gets he gets really frustrated by the most bizarre criteria like he'll hand a book back and be like it had too many characters <laughs> i'm like how is that <laughs> why it can't all just be life of pie buddy like, it can't just be two people on a boat forever so speaking of important questions uh one thing that i was uh thrown for a loop about in your book that I needed to know more about immediately. What is marshmallow salad? Is that a Canadian thing? Oh, but the things people can do with marshmallows is really upsetting. Yeah. If you're a Mennonite, you just look at any food thing and you're like, that's not just a food. It's a food group. And it's not a food group. It's just something you're going to have to scale by about two or 300. So they take those mini marshmallows and they tend to be like, hmm, I bet this could use some mandarin orange wedges but like the can kind okay. and then and then it's just like and then some green grapes throw those in there and uh and then like a lot of just just a lot of fluff a lot of fluff gesture and then sometimes jello and it is rough it's is it rough. like at barbecues when do you serve marshmallow salad mm, we don't have like because we don't really have uh any good reason to celebrate thanksgiving in the sure. way that you guys do because we have no civil religion is what I'm reaching for. And so we do have a lot of Thanksgiving for at a different time. We have it in October for entirely inexplicable reasons. But when you visit our gentle and kind people, I, I would very much like to explain to you how bad food could be. Okay. No, I guess we, we shove marshmallows into, uh, mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving for some reason, oh, like yeah. they'll put it on top of yams or sweet potatoes. Yeah. I'm not sure why, but maybe yeah. it's a Thanksgiving thing. That makes sense. This was, yeah, this was like an awful on like that. That's your healthy side. 
Like you can have the carrots or you can have the marshmallow salad. <laughs> right, because it has salad in the name. It's, it's got it's salad, yeah. yeah. It's a variety. <laughs> I think the one time that I, was like the first time I broke ranks with my culture was I was at an outdoor like barbecue thing and I saw that someone had put like slices of, of deli meat into the jello salad. What? And I, cause I, I poked at it, like I shook yeah. it for a second. I poked at it and I stepped back from the line and I yelled, who did this? Take responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and that felt, that felt right. I, I have a memory. Like I was uh, working on my first book and we went to this like potluck thing or something. We were living in new Orleans and uh, our friends had a, had a friend who was like a Chinese exchange student who, who yeah. would come over and she had, she made uh, cookies and she'd seen chocolate chip cookies, but she'd not had them before. And so she just thought it was like a cookie with things in it. And she didn't have chocolate chips. So she'd put beans in instead. <laughs> and uh, I, I took I took a bite of it. And uh, apparently I made quite a scene that I then later had to apologize for. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> beans that like that's just the consistency of that well no and i feel like the the exact phrase that you said what would have come out of my mouth which is who did this this is a this is a a crime against humanity (laughs) especially the the, like the texture first you thought your mouth thought it was a raisin and then it dug in a little more and then the mealiness it looked like a chocolate chip cookie that was the worst part you know you i was it was so unsuspected yeah that's like in um I'm sorry, you're getting like full on. It's like a sleepover high brain yeah. where I've been, but um, like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where it just gets Turkish delight. And it looks like something, but it tastes like nothing. Forever, forever, forever. Uh, um, well, well, we should talk about serious <laughs> yeah. stuff. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> right, you're gonna get a lot of un- unfiltered personality. Well, I, as an easy transition, though, I, I, I. Let's start with the absolute darkest question I have, which is, I was fascinated by this idea because it's something I think a lot about. You were sort of talking about as you're working, I I suspect it was your first book, but you're talking about it in this one, where you're sort of like, why work on this thing if I'm going to die? Like, why spend time and energy on something that's as hard and to a certain degree unrewarding while you're doing it (laughs) as, as a book? So yeah. what is the answer? Because I, uh, I would love to know. Well, yeah. And I, I knew how hard it would be writing a book like that. It was going to be a massive history book, like over a hundred thousand heavily footnoted words. Mm-hmm. And I knew how hard I was because I'd done it before I'd written a massive history of the prosperity gospel. And that took me a decade. And then I realized, oh, this is my, probably my last fall. And this book will have to go in in the early summer for what will probably be my last summer for a job. I'll never get to keep for reasons that I now yet (laughs) I now have to dig deep for. And it, um, at first the whole thing seemed absurd, really, truly absurd. Cause I'd, I'd always been so externally driven. I wanted to get tenure at an elite university. I wanted the feeling of the ladder that I was climbing. And, um, and then I, I got talked into it at a, uh, at a conference with two beautiful friends who do the same kind of work. 
And they said, you know, Kate, you've been kind of talking about this all wrong. You're always framing the historical work you do as like a result of your ambition or your um, some kind of like quirky hobby at best. But, you know, even if the worst happens, like you're in there, like they, like the people who love you can find you there. Sure. And I, I guess the way that kind of resonated for me was that, um, that there's like a deep purity to doing something, you know, you were made to do. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I happen to believe that ideas bear up the weight of civilization and they don't have to be mine, but I do think that idea work, which is like, especially I love the work of deep history is inherently valuable and that I happen to be good at it, but that only about 500 people read those books. <laughs> so that was the math equation I ran, but it, it, uh, it came out to a feeling of deep calling. Did it change your relationship with the work, the, the, the sort of transition from external motivation to intrinsic, I might not even be around to experience the rewards motivation? Yeah. Yeah. I think I had to figure out too, if it could even fit in the course of a day, because what I was imagining was a mountain of work. And I was going to, in a way, have to be like in full beast mode to do it so that I would have to get up two hours earlier. I'd have to know exactly how many words a day I would have to slog and then toggle fast where I could put it down, turn toward momming a little smushy baby and then not being a dick to my family and friends you know, like having enough yeah. left to then also be doing almost full-time like chemo immunotherapy, sad cancer things. And so, right. but the beautiful feeling was the second I'd done it in the day, I used to send it to my dad, who's also a historian. And then he would read it over and we would sort of chew over little bits of things. But the feeling then of having that shared work where someone's kind of keeping pace beside you, that felt like we were digging out a, like a deeper part, even of being together. So it wasn't sure. then just intellectually satisfying. It felt like I was not alone and being able to simultaneously make it like a gift, like a, like a, like a family, like a, like a family project. Sure. And when the sort of looming specter of death diminishes slightly, does that go away or were you able to carry it forward on these two books? <laughs> I find death is very weird. Uh, not that I've really fully been there, but I've almost been there a couple of yeah. times. And it's almost like the volume, it's almost like volume dials. Like uh, yeah. the volume of some things gets turned way up and then other, it just feels very dreamy and far away. So that, um, that, and for me, work has always helped me kind of adjust the dials of my life. So mm-hmm. I would, I spent, I had to spend so much time in the hospital and I just didn't want to, I knew I had to be there. Like you have to get blood work done. You have to be nice to your nurse. Not everyone has to force their nurse to pretend to be a vampire, but that's what I did <laughs> and pretended he wanted to be left alone with my blood. And that's what I needed to get through those days. But I, uh, I also wanted to be somewhere else and still myself. So I used to conduct interviews all the time in the cancer center Wow! and have people stop by for my new, I had hundreds of people to interview for that dumb book. (laughs) So I was like, Hey, I'm really busy. You should come on by. But it was so um, lovely to see the way people are truly themselves while in the midst of you being truly yourself. So anyway, so that was, that was very intense and felt really meaningful, but 
but then what, like, what do you do if you kind of have more time to spend? And I realized that I, I think I realized I needed to toggle between a couple different ways of being that I needed to write to tell the truth, which was the, the beauty of being able to write like memoir and cultural essays. Sure. But then the other bit was I needed to write to learn. And so that I would keep flipping back and forth between those kinds of writings just so I could um, learn how to keep living, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to think about that because I wrote one book during the pandemic. I did a one book and a children's book, but it did feel like, especially in the summer of 2020, when things were really crazy, it was this sort of unique period of sort of stillness and quiet where the it felt like yeah. the volume was turned down, but then the stakes were turned up and then uh, you weren't expected to do anything. So it sort of like was like waking up like on a Sunday every yeah. day, just and and if you made progress, you were ahead because most people were not doing anything. And as I've been working on the next book since then, uh, you know, everyone's sort of talking about things going back to normal. I'm not sure if I really want them to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Whatever that was Mm -hmm. felt better to me than normal. Yeah. Did you like the, um, I'm just wondering if it felt like that, that deep end feeling like you can, like in the arc of a day, you can kind of dive deep under the water. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80. When you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic, to match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic code SPACE80. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and like, there was so much less to say no to because most of the stuff you have to say no to was like illegal, you know, like temporarily, like coffee or travel or or whatever, like, I, yeah. you know, I've flown a couple of times in the last month, the, the sort of first travel I've done since the pandemic for work stuff. And it's like, oh, I can't, I, I'm used to working where I'm not doing anything and nothing's going on. Yeah. And now I'm having to adjust to a sort of a busier world. I imagine that as traumatic and terrible as cancer was, it was a bubble, like literally and figuratively where yeah. you were just 
that was your life and everything else in the external world you just didn't have time for. I think the thing I was most scared of those is the the beauty of the world you're describing where the bubble lets you go deep, like deep into work or deep into love. And like there was and is living with chronic cancer is like the feeling of of just being so like desperately in love with the world mm-hmm. and not wanting to miss it. Um, Cause it could go away. You, you have a sense of it's yeah, the, the, the precarity of it mm-hmm. does feel very um, bright. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but a lot of cancer is, and a lot of pain or suffering is not just deep. It's um, horrifyingly mun- mind numbingly mundane. It's um, feeling foggy and being mad at yourself for feeling sleepy. It's uh, being worried about being medically bankrupt because this is a country that bankrupts sick people. Sure. It was fighting with insurance companies over bills that were, so that was the, like, that wasn't just like the dross. Sometimes the suffering, I think most of suffering turns out it's just paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Kafka-esque. Feels- Yes, exactly. That feels like just such a punishment. Like, wait, this is my existential finish line. I want to be doing the stuff that matters. And instead I'm talking to Linda, Linda from HR to see why this bill came to me. No, that was something that my sister sort of told me about that I didn't think about. It's just like how long you have to spend in the hospital that, you know, chemotherapy doesn't take 20 minutes. It takes like an hour of setup and then it takes two hours and then it's an hour of this and then you can't drive. And then the next two days you're like, I, the idea that it involves so much waiting, I don't think is something people would anticipate. Yeah. What does your sister do? Uh, she's, uh, she works in education. Um, but, uh, but she had breast cancer about three years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. She's doing good now, but, but the idea of just like, yeah. And then also, I guess the, the, the hell of the logistics yes. of like, who's going to drive me. And you talk about this in the book, just the yeah. flights. And I, I could, uh, the anger you felt when, when you were like, oh, I could have been doing it at Duke this whole time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, when, when, when my life became a clock, I didn't really take too kindly to people wasting it. Right. And, uh, especially when, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor at Duke University. Right. So when I found out that Duke University Hospital was offering the treatment I would need to live, uh, I was I was so confused. I guess um because turns out we're not just suffering, we're participating in this bigger thing called biocapitalism and we're like right. caught in structures. And I think that's part of uh what makes you have to give up heroic individualism as a patient pretty fast is you're like, Oh, there's me and my, the dignity of my many choices. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you realize, Oh no, I'm in a trial and the trial has rules and the rules have sponsors. And there's a whole lot of, there's a whole, whole lot of things deciding what the next few months and years of my life will be. And it's not me. Yeah, you're like the private in a mass army and they're sending you around and they don't really, this isn't about individuals at all. And so you, but, but to you, you are an individual and in the, in the primacy of your life and death struggle, you're the most important individual. <laughs> I like trying so hard to live this hero's journey, but instead yeah. I'm just like this sad, 
sad peon who's like, does anyone, <laughs> just any, the cup bearer for all of these? Ugh. Yeah. I, I think that's what's so hard when so much of what I was trying to do is give up on this hyper agency that I'd gotten so hooked on. And mm-hmm. I didn't, I did not like being subject all the time to the things I couldn't pick. It does not suit my personality and I did not enjoy it. But that, that there's some irony, I guess, in that, because obviously as a Christian and then, but you talk about everything happens to a reason, part of Christianity is about surrender. So, but then, and we can talk about that in the abstract, but then when surrender means Linda from HR is in charge, that's yeah. a different yeah. uh, pill to swallow. Well, especially in lovingly and respectfully about Americans, but like American culture, especially American Christianity is obsessed with individualism telling and shaping their own faith story. I mean, not even our Calvinists aren't even Calvinists anymore. Everybody believes that they're, I mean, since everyone drunk from the deep wells of the revolution, everybody is positive that they are, uh, they are rugged, individualists bootstrapping their way to a different story. And in faith that has had some really strange consequences for Christianity is faith became a set of certainties that people take on. Eventually it became a belief that, I mean, try telling anybody in church that if you become a Christian, your life might actually get worse. (laughs) It's, it's absolutely countercultural. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Like the, uh, the the paradox of faith is that it's uh, about belief, but then that becomes uh, certainty or that has sort of metastasized into a kind of certainty yeah. that doesn't leave a lot of room for other people to have different beliefs or situations. Well, yeah, I think that there, I think that the math that starts to get run is, uh, is a kind of obsessive futurism. So because in this story, that uh, Jesus's death and resurrection saves the world. God is drawing us toward a story of love in which um, all things will be made right. And then therefore, (laughs) and so it goes like, and then therefore, you know, heaven makes today um, not just bearable, but it makes it impossible then for you to complain. Or if you say, you know, I'm really scared. Like, I'm really, I'm just like, I'm really scared right now. Then like, Oh God, didn't give us a spirit of fear. (laughs) So it, the futurism becomes, um, a huge burden for people who are just trying to say that, that the life takes more courage than we expected. And, uh, I think, I think like in the balance, here's my guess about me and you, Ryan, my guess is you and I agree a lot about courage. My guess is we disagree about hope, but I think that in this version, that the people who are especially hopeful are obsessed with a future that I'm asking them to give up <laughs> a little bit of, of certainty about. Interesting. Well, our mutual friend Seneca says that uh, hope and fear are the same, <laughs> which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. Tell me more. Um, well, that they're both sort of about uh, what the future will be, Mm -hmm. some sense either of dread of the future or certainty about the future or expectation for the future, instead of dealing with that kind of painful ambiguity of the present moment or 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 an uncertain future. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, 
I love the framing of the existential cliff that, that stoicism is so good at. I think it, um, I think it rubs against our cultures. Uh, uh, I'm trying to pick a nicer word than delusional. Um, excited, <laughs> excited, anticipatory um, habits about always saying that life is supposed to get better. Yes. And, and just to be able to say, uh, we don't know what the future will hold and we, and we have to learn how to, um, accept the live what's under the burden of that with a little bit more, uh, humility, I think. When you talk about that in the book, specifically about the Stokes, you're talking about how they lived in a time of cholera and smallpox and, uh, executions and exile and, and all of that. So it is interesting that then they spent a whole bunch of time going memento mori or or remember, you know, Seneca talks about never forgetting fortune's habit of behaving exactly as she pleases. So so it's yeah. weird that people who lived in an uncertain world where tragic, terrible things were happening all the time at certainly at a level greater than it is today. Right. Like yeah. you're not getting exiled. You know, even if you're canceled, it just means you don't have a Twitter account or something anymore. Right. So like uh, the stakes are so much lower. And yet we don't do any of that. Remind, Like it's weird that they had to do the reminding when the stakes were there and visceral and real. Yeah. And then today, when it's actually much more likely that you would be caught by surprise by one of those things because it's not happening to your neighbor we're like, oh, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm prepared. And you're not, pre I don't think anyone's prepared. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, I loved how excited you were when you said that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is all the stuff that nobody likes when I say at parties. <laughs> so I like how excited that you are to say it at this party. Yes, yes. No, it's uh, like, you know, people used to, like you would, you, the average person would lose one to two children in childbirth. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, the Stoics are, are talking about, you know, you know, even thinking about your children's mortality. And then today that that's not happening. And we're not taking the time like you, you, life isn't reminding you of it, except in these sort of freak instances or, you know, you're mm -hmm. you're a you're a surprise case for for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, you get basically old man's cancer. And and, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. and <laughs> so so like of all of all the people who should be actively yeah. preparing it's us but we don't do it yeah and i and i should have been i mean you would think with an expertise like i study the history of people's ideas about suffering yeah. and whether their lives are going to get better you'd think that someone who'd written for 10 years on that would be slightly less surprised <laughs> but i was horrified i was horrified that it was me i was horrified that it was my life that came apart I, it was awful to be the one that felt like I was just a bomb that went off. And, but I, um, and I, I think had I lived, I mean, a hundred years before, I mean, I, I, I kept thinking about my, um, you know, especially in this plague that we've just been going through, I, I just keep thinking how short our historical memory is. Like my grandparents right. knew my grandma yeah. had been um, sent away to a, to a sanitarium with tuberculosis. And she was, I mean, the smartest person in their family was, was just about to do it. No one else had done in my family and get a college degree. And she suddenly catches this wildly infectious errant disease and she's uh, put behind glass. And 
and even even when she miraculously is allowed to leave, they had to cut out most of the tissue of her lung. And she spent the rest of her life in and out of um, quarantine, basically having to put kids, her own children in the foster care system when she couldn't care for them. And I think, man, my grandma, my grandma knew. It was just my parents forgot. And then I forgot. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm little bias, of course, as an author. And whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. That's audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com stoic. That's netsuite.com stoic. You know, Seneca has tuberculosis too. He has to spend 10 years basically in Egypt uh, uh, convalescing. And it, it it's right as he, he, he basically becomes a lawyer, gets tuberculosis, has to spend 10 years. He comes mm-hmm. back, reinvents himself as a politician. Then he gets exiled, wow. uh, spends another 10 years. So yeah, it is interesting. We talk about like things going back to normal and it's like, actually this stuff is very normal. Yes. This is like, show me some decade or some human life uh, long enough where this stuff doesn't happen. I mean, exactly a hundred years ago, yeah. we had- we Yes, had exactly, tour. exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and even, I mean, I'm a, I'm an American historian. <laughs> and I, I mean, when I, when I was giving my sort of like the big lecture series, uh, I didn't even include the history of plagues because I, I don't think I imagined- I was mostly trying to tell the story about democracy and choice and the idea of Americans' concept of self-making. I really wish I would have told the history as as it's as it's equal and opposite is the story of our of our fragile selves, right. the story of our um, of our desperate attempts to control what can't be controlled, and how um, how very quickly we forget, especially when we get all you know whipped up on our certainties. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, reading the Stoics, like, I just, I mean, I'd read Marcus Rios probably a hundred times, and uh, it never actually resonated with me that he was not only living in a plague, but he writes about the plague several times. Yeah. Like, like I guess I just assumed, so there's there's one passage that I, I've talked about a lot, so people are probably tired of hearing about it, but he says, you know, there's two types of plagues. He's like, there's the plague that takes your life. And he says, but the much more dangerous pestilence is the one that destroys your character. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, he's being whatever. I, 
I didn't get that he was talking about exactly <laughs> what we've seen play out on the news for, for 18 months. Like I, yeah. I, it just never occurred to me that he could be specifically talking about people and the plague that he was living in. And, and then, yeah, yeah. you just sort of get caught by surprise by it. It's kind of, it's kind of strange, the tunnel vision that we get. I think I had maybe thought about um, cancer in a similar way because I really didn't know anybody. Nobody in my family had cancer. I, there was no sense that it was, I was genetically predisposed to anything. And so I assumed it was a thing that unlucky people get. Don't know why, Right. but it felt, um, but the more that I have spent time with, uh, people who study cancer. And I did this one, uh, had one of those, a lovely conversation with the pioneer of bad luck theory in okay. cancer, which was this. And I will, as a historian and not a scientist <laughs> struggle to summarize this appropriately, but, um, his name is Christian Thomas and he's a professor at Johns Hopkins. And he had this thought on an airplane an epiphany that, um, that people had not been able to appropriately, uh, predict the incidence rate of cancer. So why does some, why, you know, how many people get kidney cancer versus how many people who get bone cancer. And he wondered if as a statistician, it might have something to do with the rate of cell replication per organ. What an interesting and elegant thought. And so then he decided to map the number, the incidence of cancer with, with, a, with the, with the rate of growth of cells mapped it amazingly. It maps beautifully. And he then, so when I I'm sitting there with stage four, stupid colon cancer, and I had been so desperate for a reason for it. I had been like hungry for a reason because sure. frankly, everywhere I went, I, people blamed me for it. Like it's, it's different oh. than brain cancer. Cause if you have colon cancer, you assume you get all the people who, you know, all the goop people, right. All the essential oil smoothie people. And yeah. it was what you were eating. It's something in the air. It's uh, the environmental or it's somebody's fault. It's, and it's probably mine. And didn't I, you know, always just like a deep curiosity as if I'm like sleeping next to a mattress factory every day, yeah, right. <laughs> drinking directly from the yeah. environmental. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And I am. Um, and when I, I, cause I, I guess I had been struggling honestly with, um, just this like hyper causality that happens when you suffer. Why, 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 why? Sure. And um, also I had recently had a nurse blame me for what I eaten, what I'd eaten on the, on the way into like a recent procedure or yeah. something. She looked at my chart and she was like, well, must be something you ate. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, hi, well, I'm in a hospital gown. I'm feeling yeah. a little tender right now. Maybe you could stop tacitly calling me fat, but, um, but the, when the researcher Christian Thomas said, he looked at me and he goes, Oh, well, Kate, I mean, cells duplicate and cells in the colon duplicate at a higher rate. So my dear, there's not necessarily like a, a reason you're just, um, you're just deeply unlucky. And I, uh, when I started thinking about cancer cells, being, you know, cells that try to fix themselves, cells that try to duplicate of just living inside of the, of chance itself. I felt, um, I felt like I was able to accept the chaos of it in a way that I, I don't think I would have been able if he hadn't joyfully pronounced me deeply unlucky. So what's the difference between being deeply unlucky and everything happens for a reason? It's the same well, nonsense, right? 
Well, it depends. I mean, I've only read a little bit about the history of luck, but uh, it really all depends if you've applied like a, it's almost like I think of it as if you've, um, if you're living in a closed universe or not, everything, every, like if you're living, if you're living under like a, not an open sky, a closed sky, a closed ecosystem, every single thing like karma has to either come back to you in some way or another, every action gets a reaction. Then everything has to be overly hyper-interpreted. And I think depending on your theory of luck, one of the um, lovely explanations is that uh, it's not an explanation at all, is that something uh, surprising happens and it has a happy outcome, you're lucky. But neither of those things are a story about your character or a story about, and 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 right. sometimes they are, but allowing there to be a little bit more ambiguity there is like something I'm, I've, I really do a lot of work around because I, it's like a deep hope I have that it'll make us more charitable, I think. When even in, so even unlucky is a bit of a story then, right? It's just, that's, that was just your luck, right? Like probabilistically it can happen. So it did happen. And that's why you're in the mess you're in. It does get a little um, pluriverse with theories of luck because it really kind of depends on whether or not you've decided what the rules of the game are. Like, for instance, one theory of luck is that when a system operates the way it should, you're not lucky. You're just, you know, it's the natural outworking. So, for instance, you could just be if you, um, you know, if I'm an affluent white person entering a healthcare in a certain position and it works to my advantage. I'm not lucky. It's just the outworking of the system and the way it's designed. But in this, because I study religious causality, I guess um, part of the burden has been in being like a, an over-interpreted person. Like I can't just, I'm always like a spiritual problem to be solved or a, and I, this is what pe- this is how people are seeing you. you yeah, because yeah. I can't otherwise. I'm otherwise. If what happened to me was just random, yeah, then it might happen to them, or they might have to like. Let's say it's a. I, I think we. I think this is a. This is a problem we have politically in the United States with, um, you know, some some of the 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 issues that we obviously have to solve. Whether it's like let's say let's say mass shootings. If you can respond to this with. Uh, everything happens to a reason or thoughts and prayers, then you don't have to address yeah. it, right? And so I think you're talking about some of the inequities in the healthcare system or the, the 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 fact that you can be bankrupted for the bad luck of having cancer. If this is just something that can happen to someone and that it happens with an alarming amount of regularity, uh, then we have to do something about it. If it's God's will, then yeah. we can just feel bad for that person and not have to change. And that's, that's the thing I think people struggle with, even with stoicism, this idea of like, what's in our control, what's not in our control. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you just look at all the horrible things happening in the world and you go, Trump. glad it's yeah. not me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the courage to act. I hear that. Or, or, or yeah, the courage to actually sit and wrestle with the discomfort of good, uh, bad things happen to good people. And that that could happen to me. Ryan, we don't want to live in reality though. Wouldn't we? (laughs) What a terrible idea. These are awful. You must be terrible at kids' birthday parties. Uh, 
Yes. I, although like, I would say one of the one of the upsides of the pandemic has been fewer kids' birthday parties. Yeah. What do you mean? Standing near strangers, watching children blow on food. You yeah, not that? having to do seven one day, the back to back to back. I've enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk me through your introduction to the Stoke because that's actually how I found you. My sister had sent me an article that you'd written in the New York Times about your cancer diagnosis, where you talked about. Seneca, I believe. So how, how does that introduction happen? Uh, well, I was being talked out of it by my lovely colleague, Warren. Uh, so I teach at a, I'm at uh, Duke University's. Do-gooders who lead local congregations. And I was really struggling with the idea that um, the future just felt I mean, I could hear it in the way that I couldn't talk, uh, I couldn't speak casually anymore with people. They'd always say, oh, we should do that in the summer or like, let's go to, or, or even just like complaining about, oh, it'll be years until I'd ever get to retire. Like we're all 12 years old. Right. And I, uh, I just, I could feel it like catch in my throat. And I, I knew that I didn't, I didn't sort of belong to the future anymore. You were dealing I, with different time horizons than everyone else. Yeah. 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 And it felt, yeah, it felt like I would, I was locked out of a, like a world that I had once very casually visited. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, but, um, I was talking to my adorable friend, Warren, who like is forever in a clerical collar. Just like, it's like, a, like I've seen him come out of the gym. I don't even understand where he keeps it. And, uh, and I was like, Warren, do you think that, um, <laughs> that he could tell I was really, I said, I, I think I'd like to give up on the future. And he said, well, would you agree that, uh, like to live is to live without the, like an anxious dependent on, on like what is to come something like that. And I was like, yes, wait, is this a trap? Please tell me that Jesus said this. And he was like, oh no, that was, <laughs> that was Seneca. <laughs> and he was like, but we Christians are, are, are meant to be people of hope. And I said, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the future, <laughs> the future is like an abyss. And, uh, I guess I was trying to, you know, I'm not an expert in, um, I only have, I'm going to like have to, I'd have to rummage through my philosophy minor in my undergrad to like be any good at this though. I did learn Latin and was not bad at it for a bit, but, um, I was trying to figure out the nature, like what is the nature of Christian hope if hope isn't optimism? I'd spent so long studying the history of positive thinking, and I really couldn't figure out what the, frankly, Rand, I couldn't figure out what the difference was. Sure. <laughs> so that's what I was struggling through. Interesting. Yeah, you know what? what one of the things that really struck me a, a couple of years ago was realizing that Seneca and Jesus are both born in roughly the same year, uh, both in provinces of the Roman emperor, Empire. Both ultimately die. One dies a little later than the other, but but both die sort of at the hands of the the state, mm -hmm. uh, and then both probably are more impactful after their death than during their death or during their life. But it is weird to think like these two guys were walking around the earth at the same time, saying relatively similar things. I um, you know, there's like it's such a and there's such a, um, 
a meld, like for, for centuries, there's like the, the, the impact of stoicism on Christianity was significant. I think the, I mean, obviously one believes that a guy died and then was the only person to get resurrected really, and then stay resurrected. Sorry, sorry, Lazarus. Um, And that, that resurrection tells us something about the salvation of the world. I guess the, the difference there is, um, is I think, I think one of the similarities that I feel and I, uh, is about the way that both stoicism and Christianity have a, a lovely cyclical view of time. Mm -hmm. Like it, it has a, it's a circle you say in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a. it doesn't just, um, well, I'd love to hear your I'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings of our culture's current obsession with the be present mindset. Yeah. Well, you know, the other the other two stoicism bible things, uh Seneca's brothers in the Bible, which I've always found to be really interesting. Oh, really? Um, yeah, his brother is Gaio. Um or Gallo, I don't know how you pronounce yeah, it, but uh yeah. um and then if you told me that Marcus Aurelius was actually the author of Ecclesiastes, I would buy that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're basically a, the same. It's a got real vibe. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think the present thing is interesting because uh, there's a certain, there's almost like a certain emptiness to it, you know, like the Zen idea of presence, like you have no self, think nothing, just be present. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if that's, that meaningful, or I, I don't know, there, there's almost something nihilistic I found in that, um, in the sort of Zen approach. To me, I like the idea of just b- very much breathing the present moment in, like seeing the world, like the way that an artist or a child would see the world, which is that it's perfectly sufficient. It's wonderful as it is, even when it's ugly, even when it's mundane. Um, and and to, to not need it to be anything different than it is. To me, that's the that's yeah. where you want to get, which is when you yeah. just say be present isn't quite capturing what we're talking about. Yeah. It sounds like you're arguing for a deeper acceptance and a more and of the granularity of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I talk in my stillness book, I talk about uh Maria Abranovic. Um, and she does this that uh art installation where she sits in a chair every day for like 50 consecutive days. Yes. And like, as she's sitting there, people will, you know, they would rotate, people would come and like, you watch some people like sit across from her and she has said and done nothing. And they just burst into tears. Just yeah. the being in the presence of someone who is present was almost more than they could bear. And yes. I found that to be very poignant. Yeah. You always know, don't you? When yeah. Like, and I, I, uh, old people have that vibe very often. It's the, the grandparent vibe. Yes, totally. I, it is like a, it is a deep, that is a deep magic is being willing to be surprised and then changed by the people you actually encounter. That's a kind of, um, that's a kind of hype, like just that 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 feel that's that started for me i think with my diagnosis mostly cuz i couldn't maybe because the future was taken away in such an intense way and then i i needed to be surprised in my day cuz the day wasn't sufficient i found during the pandemic um just a sort of an overwhelm of emotions of just like this is like this is sort of it 
This is enough. Yeah. It's not going to be anything different. It could be like this forever. It could end tomorrow. Like, like life itself could end tomorrow. Um, just, just, a. it was a sort of a, a weird feeling that I haven't been quite able to shake of just like, yeah. Yeah. Sort of really fully being engaged in life in a way that you're not when you're doing 50 things at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, um, when life can't be wide and then just to make it deep, like just to keep letting the, the new details of it. I did, it did look up. I was in quarantine nine times though, because of um, the government. I was in Canada and every time oh. I, Oh, I was in quarantine nine times though, Ryan. And I will tell you on the ninth, I felt less in love with the details of my small student rental in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'll tell you. That's interesting. So, so we live out in the country and then decided to sort of take it very seriously and just never, because I don't have to see anyone for work and neither is my wife. We just sort of have been on one long quarantine, like sort of ever since. Um, yeah. And so it, it was really sort of surreal and beautiful, but that was something I was going to ask you. So when you have this sort of, you, you talked about the, the volume being turned down and the volume being turned up on some stuff, but then as you come out of the diagnosis uh, or, or into the remission or whatever the, the sort of weird thing they call it. I know, it I know. I'm not even cancer. I'm not, it's not even remission. I'm just sort of like, I would now pronounce you cancer-y. Yeah, you're, you're good <laughs> for now. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm cancer adjacent. <laughs> how do you, how do you, like, because I've been struggling with this, like on the couple, like there was stuff I agreed to when it was like hot back summer and we thought life was going back to normal. <laughs> And then now it's like a little weird, especially here in Texas, but like, I've been, I've been having trouble doing mundane things that yeah. are part, like, like, it's like, I'm supposed to miss bedtime for this fucking conference call. <laughs> or like, I have to go to the DMV. Like, how could someone steal one hour of my time for such a, how, how do you go back to just regular life? Yeah. That's right. That's thing. Yeah. How, I love, how have you adjusted? I love this. You're right. Cause there is kind of a brittleness to it Yeah. where you're like, fuck you. I'm being existential right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She said as a Christian, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess it, it did sort of help me when my, my friend Luke was, um, in his work, he, he like talks about different kinds of experiences of time and that basically just describing to me that the one in which I've been living was tragic time that like, there's a, you know, which was, we, we've all been in, in the pandemic that the stakes have been elevated, the both gratitude and intensity of the todays and the yesterdays become kind of overwhelming. Um, and, uh, and also like an overlap, but not always related is like apocalyptic time. I mean, I, I hope we've all read accounts of people who, who, um, who believed that the very end of the world was, was on them and that they had stark binaries that they imagined the, and that they, um, and that, that gave them a kind of crisp clarity about what they, um, what was intolerable and what they would give everything to be, to have in their lives, you know, and then there's just ordinary time. And that's, that's the pastoral the, time. Yeah. That's just the garbage getting up and then figuring out whether your bread has gone moldy for your nice toast and, and then, you know, caring about other people, returning phone calls and then right. giving up on self-mastery for the moment. And I, uh, I, I find I have such a deep, I mean, I think Ryan, this is why we have like a secret and immediate, um, 
uh, friend assumption, at least on my part, is uh, is like a deep, deep, a deep intolerance of ordinary time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I think I got very used to having no ordinary time over the last eighteen months, and now you're like, what do you mean the flight is thirty minutes delayed? <laughs> like you're stealing this from me and my children, and we'll never get this back. You know. <laughs> And I love that so much. You are robbing me of my lifeblood, which just to say my minutes. And uh, yeah, I, the tick, tick, tick feeling, I really, uh, I, I, I feel that so deeply because I, I have, I have wanted so desperately to turn all my minutes into moments. And then when people want to change them back, like Cinderella pumpkin style back, right. back into these garbage minutes. Yeah. I feel you. I mean, cause at first I, when I knew that my minutes, like when you said, did you say Rob stolen? You said yes. stolen from yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you can't, you can't take this from me. Right. I, uh, I stood up in the middle and a couple months after my diagnosis, everyone had sort of thought I was ready for polite company. Turns out I wasn't. Right. I would like stand up in the middle of work lunches and announce, I don't have time for this. Yeah. I like rented heavy machinery just to bulldoze things out of sheer joy. I I was recently, I promise this is just not related to anything, but poisoned by a copperhead snake. And I um, was in the hospital being- Wait, you got bit by a copperhead? I sure did. I saw, I, I saw a, um, uh, a coral snake this morning. I was, uh, it was oh. very exciting on our, on our morning walk, but so how oh. did it, how did it get close enough to bite you? Well, please don't get bitten because it'll cost you $120,000. Yeah. Right. The anti-venom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just, I was a block from my house, like a saint moving a half step off a path for an old man onto a fully mowed, uh, a bit of grass. Wow. And then I, uh, I guess stepped on where it was probably living and having a nice day. And then it bit me and I, um, it really hurt, uh, is like a not surprising subplot of that scenario, but it also meant that I got to walk into a hospital yell, I've been poisoned, which was one of the funniest things I've ever gotten to say. But I, um, while I was stuck in the stupid hospital, I was so, I was, I was like, you are robbing me of my Tuesday. And I immediately, I was high, but I did apparently send a very thoughtful email to somebody asking if they worked with, I was like, I think I remember that you worked with sharks and then like cut to two weeks later, I'm like fishing dinosaurs out of the ocean because I don't like having things be taken right. from me. And I, I just, I hear you. Wow. What happened? I like you have a motion sensor. Lighting? I do. I do. <laughs> I also just thought we might want to, we just might want a little drama. Um, One of the, what, you know, you write, you write these sort of books about, you know, that, that appeal to people in times of of difficulty and you sort of never know who they're going to reach. One of the weird experiences for me with the daily stoic is um, somebody gave Billy Bush a copy of the book, like as his life was imploded and destroyed for a tape that, you know, he basically forgot existed and, you know, he was not the bad guy on the tape. Um, uh, but he was kind of the bad guy. No, I mean, he's he, <laughs> B- Billy Bush took the weight for our anger at a different person. 
right? Um, uh, but anyway, so he loses his job and his livelihood and his reputation. And then um, he was telling me like three weeks later, he's like playing golf with his friends and his friend like drills him in the head with a, with a golf ball, like off of a drive. Like he nearly oh. dies from oh. that. And uh, it is weird uh, how we think that life is as bad as it could possibly be. Yeah, and, and then it manages to get head. worse. Yeah. Then you get bit <laughs> by a, by a copperhead. <laughs> um, Ryan, I'm going to just say this as an aside so that you can fully cut this because you won't want to include it. Um, but uh, Billy Bush absolutely immediately tweeted that everything had happened for a reason and that he had been uh, and that he had been taught a lesson by wow. his uh, complicity. Complicity was the word he should have used. And so I was like, oh, OK, well, maybe that maybe that's not the right maybe that's not the right lesson. But I well, bet he hadn't read your book yet. And so I would have uh, liked to meet him <laughs> after he read your book. OK, let's. Well, well, let's actually leave it in because my favorite part of the book is the appendix where you translate what we should say instead of that. So I'll, I'll let him know that it's not everything that happens for a reason. It says we must learn to face uncertainty with courage, which I love that. Right. It's it's not that it happened for a reason. It's that uh, shit happens and you got to figure out how to to navigate through it. Sometimes that shit is your fault. Sometimes it's partly your fault. Sometimes yes. you're not to blame at all. Yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. Why do you think we, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think people gravitate towards those cliches because they do kind of explain things, Yeah. but they're also woefully insufficient at the same time. Um, and I do wonder if like, if you ever actually heard one of the Stoics say one of these things to you at the time, you'd be like, shut the fuck up. Like that is woefully <laughs> insufficient to the tragedy of my current situation. I, uh, I do think that this, it's part of the beauty and the weight of, um, of, you can say time war truths, or you can say cliches, but, yeah. uh, it's that there's always a little gem in there. Like, like the beauty of being present is you and I agree that that people are magic and that if you slow down that, that, that time unspools and that's a weird, that's a weird trick to learn. Um, I think YOLO is a great idea, except of course, if you need to, you know, pay taxes or like, a um, career. bury the, like bear the weight of, of other people's loves and dreams too. Sure. Like there's, you know, a whole, a whole hundred several hundred thousand people right now who are not living their dreams. There's they're living the dreams of other people by, by being a caregiver. So we're not all just self-realizing yes. you know, existential hunger monsters. My, my, uh, my favorite one from Seneca that I think about that sort of changed my thinking. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts would be. He says, don't think of death as something in the future. He says, think of death as something that's happening always like it's happening right now. So like the time that passes belongs to death is basically what he says. Oh, that um, is nice and dark. Yeah. I like a good crispy darkness. And and so this idea, like instead of like, oh, um, like I have 40 years left. It's like, how many years have yeah. you lived? I'm 40 you know? years spent. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that seems to me an interesting way to think about it because it's also in our control, right? Like you, if we go back to the idea of being present, the time you have now, you can choose to live it or not live it, or just let it elapse. Um, whereas you don't really have control over when the end comes. Yeah. Yeah. Control really is a drug and I have loved it. <laughs> With your lists and things. I love my lists. I love 
my, I love my light feeling of wind in my sails. I love the feeling of being on stilts, you know, like your steps just, but having most of that taken away and still having like, like what things remain, you know, and unfortunately it is like the, the deep and beautiful love of others and being a group project. And we all know we hated group projects in high school. <laughs> so someone's always like, someone who did B minus work is always getting an A plus. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> your your family members are not contributing to the group project. As yeah, I'm going to name them right now. Let's get into it. Let's get specific. Who failed me during cancer? <laughs> um, last thing, because I do think it, it's 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 interesting to actually hear you because you can when you read the books it's very clear that you have a sense of humor and that you're fun and and uh that that's partly what gets you through this but i think there is this idea at least particularly of the stoics but i, I suspect of christians too that sort of the study of philosophy these big ideas sort of sucks the joy out of everything or sucks the humor out of it but all the priests that i remember liking growing up were hilarious <laughs> and like i think the stoics are really funny too um why is there this idea that this is all like very deadly serious and there's no yeah. fun in it? Yeah. Well, partly the ponderous tone we probably use while quoting, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, the reason why they're funny is because tragedy, I mean, because it's tragedy yeah. it's like humor and drama and comedy. And I mean, it is like, it is the deep comedy of our lives. Better and, to laugh than cry. <laughs> and laughing i mean really it helps us tell the truth it really does i mean we all know the person who will say it in yeah. a group and that person <laughs> and like that is a uh, it is it's it's because we we need to practice getting up as close to the edge of the cliff as possible and um and imagining we have wings for a moment which is what comedy does like helps us feel the upward draft of the the air and and, and not just hold our breath. That's beautifully said. Well, I loved I loved the new book. I loved the other one, which I also read. <laughs> and uh, I hope there are many more to come. Ryan, you are such a philosophy nerd and I love it so much. I would absolutely have been your best friend in college. Remember, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave is now available everywhere. You can go to your local bookstore and pick it up. You can come to the Painted Porch and pick it up. We are still offering... Uh, the pre-order bonuses. We've extended it to the end of this week. So you can get that at dailystoic.com slash pre-order, but you can also get Audible, you can get eBooks, you can get whatever you want from wherever you want it. But I would very much like you to support the new book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f***ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dom Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. 
trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business.